0: Hi, and thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Watching a war from afar prompts many of us to want to try to help, and that includes making donations to charities. We look into how to make sure your money provides the kind of impact you're looking for. We talked to the chief economist at the Conference Board of Canada about the impact sanctions on Russia are having on the global economy at a time when inflation is already at its highest in decades and supply chains are stretched to their limits. Find out what it could mean for you and your pocketbook. But first, we speak to a Canadian, one of several planning to heed the Ukrainian president's call to join the effort to defend the country against Russia. He doesn't hope to fight, but he does want to help. Well, Ukraine has called for the formation of an international legion of volunteer fighters. Foreign Affairs Minister Melody has said publicly the federal government doesn't have any problem with that if they want to join. Um, but we've been reading about the casualties already an estimated 2,000 civilian casualties, according to the Associated Press, although that figure can't be verified. And of course, more than a million people apparently have already fled. But some people have been looking to go the other way and join the fight after hearing the call from Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky. Bryson Wolsey joins me now from Powell River, BC. He's one of them. Bryson, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. Just tell me about, about how what did, made you decide that this might be something you wanted to do
1: um, yeah, I mean, uh, just, I've been keeping an eye on what's happening and seeing the images coming back and yeah, like the civilians being killed or maimed and um, children dying. It's pretty, pretty nasty stuff. Um, I don't think what's happening there is right. And I, I know, I know I'm not the only one, right. There's lots of people too, that have reached out to me since uh, yesterday at that are also wanting to volunteer or get over there or do something to help. So it's really, really sparked a, sparked a fire and people, um, but yeah, it was just it's a great injustice and I think uh, I didn't feel right just sitting and watching it and when I felt that I could do something in whatever capacity to to lend a hand, right?
0: So what's the so what's the plan because how how does one go about even getting over there and 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 trying to volunteer? I don't even wouldn't know how it worked.
1: Yeah, so um it's kind of shifted around given the situation the last couple of days, but right now the best way to go about it is to uh, pl- uh, apply through the embassy, right? Um, and they're, they're pretty swamped with everything that's going on, so it might take a little while, but, yeah, go through them. And then there's a uh, – I heard in a report earlier that um, the Army's uh, only supplying the volunteers with weapons, so basically you've got to kit yourself up, um, get a plane ticket. Um, there's quite a bit of supplies to get. You want to make sure you're going there prepared and then buy a plane ticket uh, go to Poland or another country bordering Romania, Hungary, and then um, go to the border. And because you've done your paperwork through the embassy, you'll be just walk right through the border, and um, they'll they'll point you in the right direction. I don't have much information on what happens after that. Uh, I know there's some training camps and whatnot around, but but yeah, stuff's kind of spotty with that. But that's the basic idea of what what, what we, you got to do to get there.
0: What would you like to do once you're there? Do you do you, do you actually? I mean, I've been in a Ukrainian war zone, and it's not not pleasant at all. No, um, no. What would what would you like to do when you? you wanna, do you want to? Do are you willing to sort of do the sort of the the anything that's available to be done, or do you? Is it really about fighting?
1: No, um, not so much fighting. I mean, if that's what I end up doing, that's what I end up doing. But any anything that I feel like wherever I could be the most helpful. You know, even if, if I'm walking to the border and I see there's something I could do that I think I'd be of more value, like whether it be cooking for refugees or something, if I see that something to do, I'll go and do that, right? This whatever I can do to help. But I'm and going over to the legions, right, is that um I'm gonna just let them kinda throw me where they think I'd be best used to, I don't know. They they probably know better than me where uh, where I would be best served to be, but <clears throat> sorry. Yeah, mm-hmm. so just kind of keeping it open, not I'm not going over there expecting to ramble or anything um just whatever no. whatever i can do just want to help right
0: yeah i mean just just take personally like what was the moment you decided i need to go do that like what was that uh what was that moment
1: it was um when i read that they had announced the formation of the international brigade because that's uh right. when i felt like that was i could do something because i couldn't re- really help financially i don't have much in the way of wealth right so and then I don't have a platform to generate money, right? So I just kind of, like, felt a little helpless. And then when that came forward, I was like, oh, okay, that's uh, that's my opportunity to do something, right? So so uh, I just I leapt on it a little bit prematurely. Uh, didn't realize how much longer it would take. So, But, yeah, I mean, but it's been good. And I've had lots of people reaching out there, 30, 40 people at least that want to go over there. Some veterans are offering to give me some training before I go, give me supply lists. Um, yeah. So people, people are really, really, uh, coming together. It's, it's really, really, um, inspiring.
0: Yeah. I mean, it must help as well. I mean, the Canadian government said it's fine. Uh, I mean, it, it, oh, yeah. I think they were, they were sort of talking to people with of Ukrainian descent, but I, I don't know if you are of Ukrainian descent, but, uh, I, I guess I, it doesn't really matter, I suppose.
1: Yeah, I'm not, I have no family connection to Ukraine or anything. Um, but uh the yeah, and there's people I'm talking to again too that don't either, and there's many that do, but there's lots of them that said it's just states all called or anything. It's a into creating justice it's, it's kinda of like watching what happened in nineteen thirty nine, right, when Germany and Soviet Union attacked Poland, right? Mean, it's just mm. it doesn't sit right yeah. and uh we have the opportunity to, you know, step up and stand against it, right? So people yeah. are
0: willing to do have that. Have you ever have you ever been to that part of the world before, Bryson? Have you ever been to Eastern Europe or
1: no, I've, uh, no. I've ever been in LA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: it's, it's different. It's different. Yeah. Uh, Bryson Wilson, listen, I, I wish you the best of luck. Uh, I, I guess it's going to be slower than expected, but uh, keep us posted. Yep. Um, yeah, sure. yeah and, and yeah, I look forward to hearing, uh, hearing news. Thanks so much for talking to us tonight. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Take care. <laughs> Well, whenever disaster or conflict strikes, a lot of us feel the need to help out. And that could take on many forms, charity auctions, bake sales. We've seen all kinds of great examples over the last few days in this country alone. But one common way, of course, is to donate to a charity. That, though, could be a difficult choice with so many options and things cropping up every day and not necessarily knowing what will allow that money to provide the kind of impact that you're hoping for. Well, joining me now to help you out with that and how to make a educated charitable donation work is Kate Bain. She's the Managing Director of Charity Intelligence Canada. Welcome to the show, Kate.
2: Great to be with you, Ben.
0: Your organization has re- released a very handy uh, sort of fact sheet, or at least guide to, to donating, to making an educated donation in, in this during this conflict. And one of the things you pointed out that was really interesting is conflicts, wars are different from other sort of disasters when it comes to charitable giving. How is that?
2: Oh great point. So what we are seeing is it's the same charities right now that are launching their fundraising appeals. They were really fast once war was declared on February 4th. All of a sudden our inbox is flooded with charities saying we're going to help Ukraine. But most of these are international development charities. These are the charities that build schools, dig wells, help educate children in developing countries. And yes when you have a natural disaster be it an earthquake or a tsunami it is these charities that are typically the emergency responders but when we look at the ukraine situation this is a full-out war this is ukraine versus the russian military Mm -hmm. Um, this is not a time for development projects this is a time for I mean, critical humanitarian aid delivered right now. And you need to think about which charities have partnerships inside Ukraine. The logistics are very challenging. How is your donation going to get into Ukraine or to the countries around Ukraine that are taking the refugees? And how is your donation going to do the most good possible? This is a very different situation. It's a full blown war. And when it's a different situation, we really think that Canadians should look at different options and think about giving support different ways.
0: I know that, of course, the first thing that we saw was the Canadian Red Cross because, of course, the federal government supported it. Uh, What should I be looking for before I immediately make a donation to one organization without singling anyone out or uh, for any sort of critique?
2: Yeah. And this is a trend in the humanitarian sector or the international development sector or disaster response. There's a big trend that they're going to get donations now and they're going to spread them out over five years. So, um, you know, they talk about long term development. They talk about rebuilding and resiliency programs. Um, That's not what Ukraine needs right now. If you're in the Ukraine war you need help now not five years from now and the last thing we want is for your donation to be sitting in a canadian bank account two years from now so we just need to i mean we've talked about this forever that we're looking at a speed test when you make a donation how quickly is that used in an emergency response so it's a different philosophy from where the sector is in its sort of long-term focus And especially for the Ukraine situation, we want money to get to Ukraine as quickly as possible.
0: So if I'm sitting at home thinking I would like my money to get there as quickly as possible, what should I be looking out for when I'm seeing a charitable request from a charitable organization?
2: Yeah. And it's, it's not about being passive, you receiving requests from charity. It's you almost have to be active. So use our list on, on what options we found on how you can help Ukraine. But one thing we found was you can donate as a Canadian. You can go online and you can donate directly to Ukrainian Red Cross. That way, you know your money's gotten into Ukraine. And that's where the needs are going to be greatest, are inside Ukraine. Um, similarly, we, we found that you can actually donate to the Ukrainian government. Now you will not get a tax receipt for this support, but you need to make a decision for yourself. What's more important? Is it getting a tax receipt, or is it for your giving to have the you know, do the most do the most good?
0: And I do want to point listeners to charityintelligence.ca. There is a very helpful list on that website to help you navigate uh, different charitable options. I'm speaking with Kate Bain of Charity Intelligence Canada. You've also provided some tips about how to donate. In other words, how to protect yourself when you're donating and what the best ways of donating are.
2: Yeah, and it's wonderful because Canadians always call us with, with with their questions and we're hearing some issues, some credit card scams on these uh, U- Ukraine fundraising appeals. So it's appalling and I'm really sorry that there's war profiteering off this tragedy. Um, please donate uh, online. Do not give out cash. Do not give out cash to people coming door to door or in shopping malls. Always it's always safer to make an online donation and use a secure website. Um, we recommend Canada helps has very good security where your credit card information won't be hacked uh, or PayPal giving fund. So look at those sort of secure websites to make your credit card donations. The second thing is. Um, Timing-wise, when you go onto these websites, you have an option. Do you want to make a one-time donation or do you want to give monthly? If you can make a larger one-time donation, again, that goes back to getting the money there faster rather than smaller payments over the next 12 months. So we would always recommend a one-time donation rather than the uh, monthly donations in a disaster or an emergency response. and don't give stuff, um, the logistics, the highways, the ports, the airspace over Ukraine, the airports, it's just really challenging to get stuff into Ukraine. So people are saying, you know, they're looking at shopping lists and we see these posted on social media, people are, you know, picking up stuff in Canada that they're gonna ship over to Ukraine. Um, this is just such a logistics nightmare Uh, in a disaster response, most of it ends up in landfill. It never gets there. So we always recommend cash over stuff.
0: So in a nutshell, be proactive, um, do your homework and donate online and try to donate one big sum and donate um, cash, not stuff.
2: Yeah, that's it, that's it. And if possible, follow up with the charity, if it's a Canadian charity. Uh, expect to see a six-month report. Expect to see a 12-month report. How was my money spent? Where was it spent? Who did it help?
0: Kate Bain of Charity Intelligence Canada. Thank you so much for your advice. Much appreciated.
2: Much great. Great to be with you, Ben. Thank you.
0: I really wanted to tell you how I came across my next guest. So Canada's Deputy Prime Minister, as we now know, and Finance Minister Christian Freeland, was instrumental in rallying allied nations last week around imposing sanctions on Russia's central bank. It was the first time a central bank of a G20 country has been sanctioned in that way and really was aimed at prohibiting Russia from tapping into any of its international currency reserves to further finance those attacks on Ukraine. Here's Christian Freeland.
2: This
1: is one of those times... And one of those places where freedom confronts tyranny. We are determined that freedom will triumph. And it will. Slava Ukraini!
0: Now that sounds like tough talk, and it certainly impressed one person. So I was scrolling through Twitter when I came across this fascinating thread from a US-based investigative journalist named Heidi Kuda. She, she spoke of someone that she keeps in touch, touch with, someone she respects a whole lot, former Internal Revenue Service IRS criminal investigator Martin Scheel. She then went on to explain that Scheel had told her, quote, let me take a moment to tell you who, in my opinion, just won this war. That may be a p- bit premature, but nonetheless, it happened to be Christia Freeland. So I had to find Martin Scheel to ask him what he meant. So joining me now from Illinois is retired IRS criminal investigator, Martin Scheel. Welcome to the show.
3: Oh, thank you, Ben. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, it's an honor and a privilege.
0: Tell me a bit about, I mean, being an IRS criminal investigator, that must have been a fascinating career. W- what kind of stuff do you do? I think I could guess, but what kind of stuff did yeah. you do? Well,
3: you know, we're the guys Um, Back in in the day, in our history, we're the guys who put Al Capone away for tax evasion. So uh, in a nutshell, uh, we're the guys that follow the money, uh, always have and always will. Uh, In fact, I I understand that uh, uh, Attorney General uh, Merrick Garland in the U.S. has just announced uh, the formation of a task force to, uh, it's called the uh, something, the Klepto something or other task force that is going to uh, pursue uh, all the Russian oligarchs, their property, their assets, their money uh, in this country, and also other, other countries. And they they brought the IRS on to uh, help out because they are the experts in in follow the money. So um, I I did that for a lot of years. I I was an investigator in New York, uh, New York city for many years, then a, got into the uh, management uh, uh, thing went down to uh, Texas the way it's, you always have to say the great state of texas and was uh, a branch chief uh, ASAC SAC uh, in in Dallas San Antonio had offices in Houston Amarillo Lubbock you know Beaumont you know the, the entire state at some point uh-huh. so um and that was important because you know we we did a lot of tax uh Uh, investigations, criminal tax, but we also uh, really, you know, started using the money laundering statutes that had been uh, legislated back in the the mid-1980s, and that was important because so much dope started coming up from uh, Mexico through Texas, uh, disseminated throughout the country, and the money would then go back down south through Texas, so there's a lot of um, money laundering going on. And there was not a whole lot of expertise uh, when it came to uh, investigating it uh, and prosecuting it. So basically, that's uh, where I sort of, you know, grew my spurs, broke my teeth, whatever you want to call it. It was in Texas. And uh, I have nothing but uh, good things to say about uh, the folks in Texas. But Uh,
0: to go back, I mean, one thing you must understand, and I'm sure no one, uh, no criminal enjoyed having you getting a phone call from you. (laughs) <laughs> um but, but 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 following the money it it's it seems like such a cliche, and yet it's always so effective
3: yeah, it is because especially with um money laundering um you, you start with you know you always start with the statute itself, which might sound a little boring, but you know money laundering if if you had a definition for it, it would be something along the lines of um. You know, you find a financial transaction, and that's broadly defined, that um, is derived from some specified unlawful activity. So you may start with a a simple bank deposit or bank withdrawal of just under $10,000 or something like that. It's called a structured transaction. And that may open the door as you follow the money, as you see other bank transactions, other banks, and you just follow the trail that may well lead you to the specified unlawful activity from which it was derived. So by following the money, you may, in Al Capone's uh, instance, you may find racketeering. Um, In a Mexican cartel, uh, you may find all sorts of narcotics activity. In some instances, like up in New York, found a lot of political corruption. I know we find, might find that hard to believe, but you know, they do have a policy. There are some politicians who are corrupt.
0: I'm speaking with Marty Scheel, retired right. IRS criminal investigator. We're talking about Christia Freeland's move to rally um, allies around placing sanctions on Russia's central bank, which uh, Mr. Scheele thought was a brilliant move. And we'll get to that very quickly. One of the things that always comes up is that we always speak of. Putin and his entourage as being something like a criminal organization. We throw that term around a lot on in the media. You would know. Is is that fair? Oh, it's more than fair. Uh, He,
3: um, he's a thug. He, he's, um, I, I would consider him, uh, I consider Russia a mafia state and, and Putin the main mafiosa, um, They have in uh, Russia uh, what's known as Russian organized crime. And, um, you know, they have, you know, various uh, capos uh, that uh, are in charge. And everything's the same. It's always extortion, you know, taking over a business. Um, You know, they push out the legitimate folks and, and the illegitimate folks come in. And they use, you know, violence extortion, et cetera, to, to just take over. In fact, Putin was deputy mayor in St. Petersburg. And you know St. Petersburg is one of the largest uh, seaports in all of Europe and has a very vast, extensive uh, waterfront. And it's where an awful lot of the oil comes in to, uh, you know, from other parts of Russia to St. Petersburg. But um, they bring in a lot of um, imports from all around the world, including from South America. So, you know, whoever runs the waterfront, you know, is, is, the, is the main guy, is, is the main mobster. And, and um, you know, Putin was the deputy mayor there, so the main mobster um, would report to Putin. And so Putin would get a piece of the action, of all the waterfront action, so, and including narcotics. So an awful lot of dope was um, shipped in. To that terminal in in um you know banana fruit and other types of uh you know alleged uh you know products and you know then there were all these um casinos right there in saint petersburg administered by vladimir putin so when you, you uh, look in terms of how um mafia ch- chieftain works you know he has his crews and and his over in Russia, they were called the Siloviki. Um, these are armed gangs that uh, are enforcers or kneecappers or whatever you want to call them. And they would, um, uh, they ran the docks. Uh, the organized a gang in St. Petersburg was called the Tambovskaya. Tem, Tembos, Tem, that was the main group in, in uh, St. Petersburg. But as Putin Moved up the ranks and became head of FSB, and then you know, uh, uh, deputy prime minister, and then president. He uh, he got to he put in jail the biggest uh, uh, mafioso guy by guy by the name of Semyon Mogilevich, who ran the Solcinevo, uh gang, which eventually took over from the Tambov gang. And this is important because Mogilevich is, was known as the brainy Don. The smart guy. And most of his activities were involved in in money laundering. He was a master money launderer. The Russians are the best money launderers in the world, and second isn't close. And Mogilevich even uh, reached out to uh, the States and to Canada and ran uh, very big uh, scams, uh, bust out scams, and then tried to launder the money from the bust out stock scams. Uh, in Toronto, through uh, Bank of New York, in uh, New York City, and and then back to Russia uh, via offshore shells. Mogilevich was a master, and um, he had some guys, some lieutenants working for him that eventually hooked up and ended up living in the Trump Tower in New York City and got to know uh, Mr. Donald Trump. So it's a small world, uh, but money laundering is what connects all the unlawful activities, um, with, uh, all the movers and shakers and Putin and Bogolevich. Putin put Mogolevich in jail a couple of years after he got in power, just to let Mogolevich know who's boss, you know? So, um, and then, then so we the, go from there.
0: The, the connections are, are well. when we come back, I'm speaking to Martin Shield, retired IRS criminal investigator. We're talking about, um, Chrystia Freeland's move to sanction Russia's central bank. We've gone back in time a bit to talk about Vladimir Putin, how he ended up in power, uh, I asked him about whether or not it is indeed a mafia state. When we come back, we will touch on Chrystia Freeland's move and why uh, Mr. Shiel was so impressed by it. That'll come up after this. I'm back with Martin Shiel, retired IRS criminal investigator. We've been talking about Russia. Um, you had some high praise for uh, for Christia Freeland. And I wonder what you thought was so genius about her rallying um, the allies around sanctioning Russia's central bank. Why was that so effective?
3: Right. Uh- Sanctions have been applied um, to Russia and to the various oligarchs, uh, uh, officials, uh, movers, and shakers um, in the past. Uh, After Russia um, uh, had their incursion of Crimea back in, what, 2014, 15, uh, quite a few of the oligarchs uh, and government officials uh, were sanctioned. But those sanctions weren't all that effective. In fact, uh, these guys are, are very clever at moving uh, their money around offshore and, and, and putting it in different names, family names, uh, shell companies offshore, etc. They're just, they're just masters of money laundering. And the same thing is true of the government. Um, what was different this time was that the central bank of Russia got sanctioned not just the bank itself, uh, but what's known as the uh, foreign reserves. Uh, the central bank of Russia keeps billions. You know, some say, you know, 60 or or, uh, or 600 billion dollars offshore uh, or in different countries and in financial institutions all around the globe. What um, Freeland did was say, hey, let's cut off the central bank from um this you know these uh this mount this money this mountain of money and and so that they can't use it uh, as a rainy day fund to prop up the other banks in Russia which uh support the businesses and the depositors so what's going on in Russia because of all these other sanctions is that a lot of businesses are having trouble uh, meeting their payrolls and particularly in repaying loans and normally when banks have run into some trouble with you know loan repayments they get extensions or they get propped up by the federal reserve or by the central bank by cutting off the reserves of the central bank of russia uh, that's no longer possible so now when businesses can't repay their loans they're looking at going belly up they're going to have to go bankrupt and if enough businesses go belly up, stop paying, repaying their loans, then the banks, uh, you know, rely upon these loan repayments for a great deal for them to stay um, uh, in business, stay liquid. If that money is cut off, you know, they, they're not getting loan repayments and the central bank is not propping them up, you know, all these banks are probably gonna end up going belly
0: up. I want to ask before you, Given your background and all your experience, if you were to compare the central bank sanctions to dealing with a criminal organization, what would you what would your analogy be? What has just happened to the Russian mafia state?
3: Yeah, um, you know, going after the money is always the best way uh, to attack, um, uh, a, whether it's a, a, a criminal gang, a mafia gang. Um, or, you know, these banks are controlled by the the FSB, actually, and and to some degree by organized crime in in Russia. So taking their money or um, cutting them off from accessing foreign reserves is really literally the best thing you can do from a law enforcement perspective um, because money is the lifeblood. Of the mafia gang, and it's also the lifeblood of of Russia. And you take that money away, and the control of it is is severed. Um, You're hurting uh, Vladimir Putin where it hurts the most in his wallet.
0: So you have high praise for then?
3: (laughs) I do. She is uh, she's my hero. She's my hero. She may well have saved Western civilization as we know it. And we can chat another time whether about uh, the propriety of that and how Western civilization is doing. But I think by uh, attacking uh, the foreign reserves of the central bank, severing that from uh, Putin's uh, access is uh, one of the best things I've seen happen so far. If anything can say, you know, be said good about this war and, what, and what's going on, but I think it was a terrific tactic. I give her all the credit in the world and um, you know, Praise uh, to Miss Freeland,
0: Martin Scheel, Thank you so much for your time tonight and your insight. What a fascinating career you've had.
3: Uh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure.